Amen. All right, thank you guys. Um, so I, I don't mean to like cast a disparaging word or anything, but I just want to let you guys know there were some that did not think you were going to get here today because of the water that was falling from the sky. They, they were doubters that thought we would have, I don't know, 40 or 50 people in the room. You guys showed them something different. And I just, I just want to say, well done. That's, uh, that's impressive. Yes, thank you. Now, maybe just out of curiosity, how many of you did not grow up in California? Raise your hand if you did not grow up in California. All right. And do you like to mock Californians for driving the way that they do? Is that like a, a hobby of yours? Okay, yeah. Um, all right. Well... Uh, it is really exciting to be here. Uh, I will just take a moment to mention our family meeting tonight. Uh, we're getting together here at four o'clock and we're really excited about uh, the time together. I'll just give you a, an overview of what we're going to be doing. Uh, we have some updates from the previous year. So we have some uh, videos from some of our global partners that they've just sent in quick updates on things that they're excited about, what God's doing. We have updates from some of our ministries here within Anthem. We'll give a financial update. We kind of talked about money a bit at the end of the year. We'll get to update you on where things are at uh, at the moment and just how we're seeing God provide in really amazing ways. Uh, and then we'll kind of transition to looking ahead at the coming year. Just what we see God doing where we're excited about the things that he's shaping in us as a church and challenging us and, and how you can be a part of those things. Uh, there will be Q&A and uh, just opportunities to, to be together and ultimately to walk together as a family. So that's why we call it a family meeting. We would love for you to join. Uh, the big thing is if you have kids and you want to bring them, we have childcare available. You must RSVP if you need childcare. If you don't need childcare, theoretically, you could show up today at four and just be here. That's fine. Uh, we don't need you to RSVP. It's always kind to let us know that you're coming. But don't surprise us with your kids. So if you're like, oh, I'll just show up. It'll be cool. They'll have plenty. Uh, I mean, we might, but don't surprise us with your kids. Just go ahead and RSVP. I don't mean to be harsh, but don't, don't. Okay, just, yeah. So thanks. <laughs> uh, we like to be able to tell the people that are doing the childcare how many kids to expect. And if it's 10 or 15 or 35 or 70 kids more than they were planning, that can always be a little bit challenging. So, um, all right. We're in Acts chapter 2. Verses 1 through 13 today. Now, I want to say a couple of things before we dig into the passage. The first is that uh, this is essentially part one of a two-part series. Uh, if you look at Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41, you get what is the event of the coming of the Holy Spirit that we're going to be looking at today. And then the implications, as Peter lays out in a sermon, the implications of the coming of the Holy Spirit that we're going to hit on next week. And so it really is two messages that could very easily be one. If you guys would be able to give your attention and time for an hour or two, it would be worth preaching through the whole thing at once. But in a 35 to 40 minute sermon, we needed to break them up into two just to give them proper attention. Uh, so all that to say, uh, we do podcast these messages. So if you're not physically here next week, uh, make sure you grab the message. It just would be unfortunate to have one without the other. So make sure you uh, get that next week and are listening to it in some way, either here in person or uh, podcast, because it really is a companion piece. Three things that we're going to be looking at. The first is that the coming of the Holy Spirit is a sign of the new covenant. That'll take the bulk of our message because it's quite a bit to explain and, and talk through. We'll talk about that. The second is that the coming of the Holy Spirit is a sign of God's power for mission. We'll take a look at that. And then the third is that the coming of the Holy Spirit is a sign of things to come. 
And we're going to look at those three different angles of Acts chapter 1, verses 2 through 13. If you have your Bibles, we're going to read them, read it together. So um, not like where you read out loud with me, but I'll read it to you, but together. So here we go. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, uh, proselytes, proselytes, there it is, proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine, or in other words, they are drunk. So that is the passage that we're going to be looking at. And the first thing that we need to talk about is the coming of the Holy Spirit as a sign of the new covenant. This is going to take a little bit of work and in some ways uh, might get a little nerdy and detailed and that type of thing. I hope that you enjoy that, but it is important. And this is to show God's purposefulness in the way that he presents himself. One thing that we, we need to understand is that God's not up in heaven just winging it, responding to whatever we do, trying to react and make new things happen, see if he can pull things all back together, you know, put all the cats back into the bag or whatever. Like God's not just there just trying to make up for the challenges that he's been presented with. God is sovereign and purposeful and intentional and orchestrating a redemptive story. And it's evidenced time and time and time again in the scriptures when we see how things play out. And so the first one that we're going to look at is this significance of Pentecost. Okay? So the word Pentecost means uh, 50 cost. Uh, penta just means 50. And it's a, I don't know what cost is there to stand for, but the penta is the 50. And it's designed to show the 50 days from Passover to this celebration moment. Now, that is a throwback to the Old Testament. So this is going to go back to Exodus. We're not going to go through all the scriptures, but we will look at a few of them. The story of Exodus is this. Israel was imprisoned in Egypt. They were captive. There were up to a million of them by the time they were eventually released. It was a whole people group that was used by Egypt as slaves to do all of their labor, to build their cities, to build their storehouses. And they were just an enslaved people group. God called on Moses to say, go get my people and tell Pharaoh to let them go. There's the whole thing with the 10 plagues. If you've had a chance to read through Exodus, you'd be familiar with that. And we get to the final plague. And the final plague, God tells Israel that he is going to take the firstborn son of every family in Egypt. But he gives Israel a way out. He says, if you sacrifice a lamb and you take the blood of the lamb and you paint it on the doorpost of your house... Every house with the blood of the lamb painted on the, on the 
door jam, the angel of death will pass over that house. And that's where the Passover comes from, is God's provision. His provision for the people of Israel, where he would pass over their homes and not take their firstborn son. And there's a whole meal connected to Passover because God gave specific instructions about the meal and he told them to be ready because that night they would get up and while Egypt was mourning the loss of their firstborn son, the people of Israel would exit or exodus the nation of Egypt. I was in Crete. They used the Greek language in Crete and I was driving on the freeway and the freeway sign says Exodus. It literally just means exit in Greek. I thought that was pretty funny. I was like, oh, Exodus. Okay. Uh, So the exit of uh, Israel out of Egypt is a significant moment in time. And the Passover inaugurates this thing called the first or what we would look at as the old covenant. The covenant that God's going to make with the people of Israel. And from that moment when they leave Egypt until they are at the base of Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is a significant moment in Israel's history where where God descends on the mountain. I'll talk about that in just a minute. His presence descends on the mountain and he gives Israel the law. The Ten Commandments, the, the, the fullness of his code of how he's going to lead them as a people. He gives it to them on Mount Sinai. And it was 50 days from Passover to Mount Sinai. So that's the significance of the event. So even though when you look at Pentecost, it's called the the festival of weeks, it's a celebration of harvest, its timing is there to indicate that from Passover you have 49 days or seven weeks or just this period of time, and then on the 50th day they celebrate this moment at Mount Sinai, the giving of the first covenant, where God told his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here's what this is going to look like. Okay, so that's the first covenant. It's important to understand that Israel took that covenant and said, all that God has said we will do. They had this whole ceremony. It looks like a wedding ceremony in the book of Exodus. God said, here's my covenant. And they said, we do. And for the rest of Israel's story, God referred to them as a married couple. He used marriage language to talk about Israel and God and the relationship that they had together. But the problem was Israel repeatedly was breaking that covenant and worshiping false gods, looking after other ways, other things, seeking what was not God. And so oftentimes the language that God uses is adultery to talk about idolatry, that they were essentially cheating on him with other gods. And he uses that language and the picture of marriage and and even God talking about hating divorce. It's designed to show that this marriage covenant was a picture of God with his people and the unfaithful to that covenant. Well, that's, that's a huge thing. So he asked one of his prophets to marry a prostitute who was going to continue to cheat on him. And that picture was there to show, hey, this is what you're doing, Israel. You are being repeatedly unfaithful to me, your God, who is always faithful. And so over the course of time, God reveals through his prophets that there would be a new covenant. There would be a new covenant. Now, this isn't a reaction because even before the first covenant was given, you go all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and God promised a redeemer. He promised that there would be one that would come that would fully redeem his people. And he reiterates that throughout the Bible over and over and over. So the promise of a new covenant is not a God saying whoops to the old covenant. Israel couldn't handle it. It's a fulfillment 
of his intended purpose. So there are a couple of passages that are really helpful and important to know about this promise of the new covenant. The first one is Jeremiah. It's pretty easy to remember. Jeremiah 31, 31. Sometimes the Bible gives you easy things to remember. 12, 12, 4, 4. You want to read about spiritual gifts? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Done. 12, 12, 4, 4. No problem. All right. Jeremiah 31, 31. All you got to think. 31, 31. New covenant. None of that is a part of the message. I'm just telling you because it feels like helpful information. So here we go. This is uh, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And here's a key. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. A key component of this new covenant that's coming is the forgiveness of sin. Okay, so hold on to that in your minds. Now, the second passage that we'll look at for the new covenant is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. This is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So the parameters of the new covenant that were given through the prophets, number one is the forgiveness of sins, and number two is I will put my spirit within you. Okay, so hold on to those thoughts, and then you fast forward to Jesus celebrating Passover, What does he do? He takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body given up for you. And then he takes the cup. And when Jesus takes the cup at that meal, he says this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus is telling us, he's inaugurating, just like the the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the houses, Jesus is saying, this new covenant is a covenant in my blood. And he tells his disciples on the night of Passover that he's inaugurating this new covenant with his blood that's about to be spilled within the next few hours. And then 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the day that God's presence Descended on Mount Sinai, what we'll read about in just a minute, we see the presence of God descend on his people. So the the picture of the new covenant is rich in this New Testament portrayal of God giving us his new covenant through forgiveness of sins and God giving us his new covenant through the coming of his spirit. All right, so here we go. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place. We already learned that. They've been going day in and day out to this upper room. They've been praying, doing what Jesus told them to do, go and wait for the promise of the Father. So they go and wait for the promise of the Father. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, 
and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Okay, so I want to take a look at Exodus chapter 19. This is a, a picture of God's presence coming onto Mount Sinai. So listen to this. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. All right, fire and noise. Yeah, that's the picture of what we're given at Mount Sinai. There's thunder, there's trembling, there's a loud trumpet blast. In the New Testament, it's described as a, a mighty rushing wind, but specifically the sound of a mighty rushing wind. How many of you have ever been through a tornado or a hurricane? Anybody here ever been through a tornado or a hurricane? All right, sort of, yeah. In the vicinity, maybe, yeah. Okay. Uh, a couple years ago, Kristen and I went to Wales, and Wales doesn't really get hurricanes except when we were there. So they got a hurricane hit and made landfall. I forget what the name of it was, uh, but it made landfall in Wales while we were there. And we were at this, like, conference at a really old, super thick, like, brick building. I mean, this thing was a couple hundred years old, but it was solid. These 100-mile-an-hour winds blow through, and the whole building was just rattling. Like it was, you could feel in a 200-and-something-year-old brick building when gusts of wind would blow by, you could feel this place shake. You could hear the sound. It was hard to actually speak and communicate with other people because of how loud it was. Everybody inside was sharing pictures of their, you know, area back home. One trampoline had gone flying up and was stuck on the spire of an old church building. And it was just like, it was chaos, but it was loud. And that's how Luke describes this first moment. And that's how Moses describes the moment at Mount Sinai. It was loud. God's presence was loud. It overtook the space with sound. And the trumpet blast grew louder and louder. And the mighty rushing wind filled the whole house that they were in. So the first picture is noise. And the second is fire. This is Exodus 24, 15 through 18. It says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring or consuming fire on the top of the mountain. That's the picture that Moses gives of God's glory. His presence is this fire. This stuff is on purpose. God's not throwing things together in Acts chapter 2 and he's like, oh, Got to send the Holy Spirit, and he sends it down, and then there's just all these things. This is distinctly designed to show you that in the same way that the first covenant began at the Passover with the blood and the forgiveness and brought them out and was completed at Mount Sinai with the giving of the presence of God, the new covenant began with Jesus and his sacrificial work 
to die on the cross and his blood spilled and poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And it was fulfilled or completed at the giving of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sins and God's presence. The sign of the new covenant is critical for us to understand what we are stepping into. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 are not given to us as a picture of how we should all be experiencing the Holy Spirit. I'll just tell you this right now. If you're waiting for tongues of fire or a mighty rushing wind to fill this room, I'm not saying that God can't or won't do that at at points throughout history. There have been times in history where God has manifested as fire or manifested as wind or sound. Those things have happened throughout church history, but they're not designed for us to look for as as an experience of believers where we would expect that God would come with tongues of fire and a mighty rushing wind. And the way that we understand this is that Israel, after Mount Sinai, and they're kind of off 40 years in the wilderness, they didn't circle back around to Mount Sinai every year and just say, do it again, Lord, we want to see your glory. And then go for another lap, and then back and just say, hey, we want it, Lord, would you bring your, bring your presence? We want to see that glory descend. And the reason is because after they left Mount Sinai, God's presence didn't just suck up into heaven. There was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. When they would set up the tent of meeting, God's presence would descend on it in fire. When they would set up the tabernacle, God's presence would descend on it in fire. When they built the temple, eventually, when they got to the promised land, God's presence descended on the temple in fire with trumpet blasts. Israel knew that they had the presence of God going with them. They weren't going back to that moment. The moment was there to show that God had given his presence to Israel. Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 are given to show us that God has given us his presence. This is an important thing to understand about about Acts chapter 2. Different people have taken uh, the Holy Spirit doctrine in different directions. Some people uh, might tend towards a cessationist point of view, which believes that Uh, The the gifts of the Spirit, or many of the gifts of the Spirit, have ceased to exist. The Spirit's activity as it was in Acts is not the same as the Spirit's activity uh, today in the church. There's a difference in the way that's portrayed. Some people have taken their uh, their doctrine and they've maybe overemphasized the events of Pentecost. And there's a, a belief that if you come to faith in Jesus, that a sign of you coming to faith in Jesus is that you would speak in tongues. And so there's a a group of people that would teach that you're not saved yet unless you've spoken in tongues. We don't believe that. And so these are maybe some of the extremes. And to be honest, it's faithful, Jesus-loving people that have read the scriptures and studied them, and they come to different conclusions than we come to, but they seem to, to kind of run to one side or the other of what do we do with the Holy Spirit? And I want to encourage you. I believe that Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 are given to us to teach us something about this new covenant relationship that we have with God. And it's a relationship of presence. Take a look at this. This is Acts chapter 2 in verse 4. It says, and they were, I'm sorry, let's go verse 3. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So here's the first moment that we start to divert from the old covenant. 
At Mount Sinai, God's fire descended on the mountain and God called to Moses out of the million people that were Israel and said, Moses, come up and meet me. So God's fire goes to the mountain and Moses comes up to meet God in his presence. And he gets to spend time with him and then he goes back down to Mount Sinai as a priest, as a mediator between God and Israel. And Moses actually functions in this role of bringing the word of God to the people of God. And God has already said in his prophetic word that that's going to be different. It's going to be different than that. I'm going to write my law on their hearts. I'm going to put my spirit within them. There's a a new dynamic And it's represented when these tongues of fire came. There were 120 people in this upper room and the the tongues of fire landed on each person, each and every one of them. And this is the picture of the new covenant is that you, when you come to faith in Jesus, receive the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit. So our doctrine of the Holy Spirit would teach that every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit. That language comes from Ephesians 1.13. It says, in him, Ephesians 1, do we have Ephesians 1.13? Will that get up there? I thought I had it memorized. There it is. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So our our belief, our understanding is that at the moment of your salvation, when you believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. That picture is one that we would look at, was inaugurated in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and continues on into eternity until Jesus comes again. That every follower of Jesus, part of your new covenant relationship with God is the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And that's a big part of Peter's sermon that he's going to preach that we're going to look at next week. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That promise is the Holy Spirit. So when Paul writes this in Ephesians 1 and he talks about how each one of us are are sealed with the Holy Spirit, then he goes on, he doubles down on it. He says, that's the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. I love that language because what that means is that when you stand before God and he's trying to determine, are you a follower of Jesus, he's going to look for the mark of the Holy Spirit. Do you have the Holy Spirit? There will be no people in heaven that do not have the Holy Spirit and there will be every person in heaven that does have the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? It's the seal, the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. So God will look for the Holy Spirit as a sign of the completed work of Jesus becoming effective in your life. That's what Paul teaches. Now, he'll go on to teach in Ephesians chapter 5, which is very connected to this passage. He'll say, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so as Luke talks about the tongues of fire landing on them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, we we don't always know how to use Acts for all the doctrine, but there's a moment where... The tongues of fire rested on them and they were filled indicates that this sealing happens and then there's also this power for the work that we're set out to do. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So why why is this important? I think I just want you to understand that this new covenant relationship that you have with Jesus, and maybe you're like, "Ah, I don't get that new covenant language. What are you talking about? If you're a Christian, 
If you're a follower of Jesus, you are part of a new covenant relationship with God that was established in Jesus. And spend time reading your Bible and studying it and getting to know it. The first two-thirds of this is the story of Israel that operated under the old covenant, the first covenant. A big part of the prophetic stuff in here, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, is talking about the new covenant that's going to come. And then the New Testament First four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are talking about the life of Jesus, but ultimately the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that inaugurates this new covenant relationship that we're able to have with God. And as Ezekiel said, that covenant is built on the Spirit being given to us. It's a major part of this, forgiveness of sins and the Spirit being poured out. Okay, so that's the first major point that we're going to be looking at, is that the coming of the Holy Spirit is a sign of the new covenant. That to receive the Holy Spirit gives you this. Uh, A couple of passages that I forgot to read. Luke 3.16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Three years before this event, John the Baptist said, this is about to happen. Jesus is coming, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. It's a picture that John had that he gave to the people that were listening to him. In Acts 1, 4, and 5, Jesus said this as well. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, let's take a look at verse 4 in Acts chapter 2. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then Luke goes on to talk about who's present in Israel. So a little bit about the scene. They're in the upper room. The Spirit comes, mighty rushing wind. The sound fills the room. Tongues of fire lands on each one of them. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they start speaking in other tongues. That language is really important. Sometimes the Bible uses different words to talk about the gift of tongues. This one is other tongues, other languages. They start to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the the noise was so loud that it actually was heard outside of this house that they were all staying in or worshiping in. And outside, there were people that were there from every nation that you could imagine Luke listing out in that moment. And here's a little bit about this. Uh, There was something called the Jewish dispersion, the diaspora. The diaspora is what took place over the various empires, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. As they came in and took over Israel, they would take people away to different nations. Israel would continue on as Israel, but just living in other nations. They would have babies, make homes, be there. There's different moments where people come back to Israel. That's what Nehemiah and Ezra are all about, people coming back from Babylon to Israel. But it just happened for hundreds of years Jews were taken out of Israel and scattered all over the world. So it's the diaspora Jews. So they're still Jewish people, just not living in Israel. And many of them would make a practice of coming back to Jerusalem for Passover and Pentecost. And they would stay for the 50 days from Passover to Pentecost. They would celebrate and they would enjoy the feast and they would do the sacrifices and they would be with other people of their people group, their nation, their their faith. And so they would enjoy that time. But they were coming from all these lands and they had built lives in these other lands. Okay, so that's the story of who was in Jerusalem at the moment. So this loud sound draws a crowd 
And the disciples spill out into the street and they start proclaiming the mighty works of God. And the people that are listening are saying, what is going on? We're all hearing them in our native tongue. Now, this is, a, this is an interesting moment. In Jesus' ministry, there are uh, miracles of necessity, like somebody is dead or sick, and Jesus heals them, and they're alive or made well. Like, those are miracles of necessity, but there are also miracles that were not necessary, like turning water into wine. Some of you might say, actually, that was necessary. <laughs> But the idea of Jesus turning water into wine, my friend was preaching on this a couple weeks ago at his church, uh, and he said, Jesus' first miracle was to rescue somebody from the shame of a catering disaster. Like, that's the, the picture of Jesus turning water into wine. It was not a necessary miracle, but it was a sign. What we have in Acts chapter 2 is not a necessary miracle, and here's why. I was talking with a gal yesterday and uh, she's a part of our church. She's given her life to Jesus, but she is Jewish, and she grew up going to Hebrew school. She's memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in Hebrew. Wow. We memorized Romans 8 last year, and we were like, yeah! <laughs> this cow's got the first five books of the Bible memorized in Hebrew. Well, that's actually normal for a Jewish child being brought up. And not only that, they would know Hebrew, they would also know Greek because they were in the Roman Empire and everybody needed to know Greek to get around. Most of them knew Aramaic because it was a very common language and they would actually use Aramaic. The majority of people in the first century were at least bilingual, if not trilingual, and oftentimes more. I just say it's because they didn't have phones yet. Like They just had things that they could do easily with all that extra time. Imagine, if you just didn't have technology in your life, how much you would learn. Uh, it's crazy what they were able to do, but, but what this miracle shows, all these people came together, and all the disciples had to do, if they just wanted to preach the gospel, all they had to do was go out and speak in Greek, or because it was all Jews and proselytes, they could speak in Hebrew or Aramaic, and everybody would have heard and would have understood what they were saying, but God wanted to do something different. This is our second point. At the coming of the Holy Spirit, is a sign that God's power is with us to carry out his mission. God's power is with us to carry out his mission. God wanted to show his disciples something through this moment. In fact, I actually think it was more for the disciples than it was for the people that were hearing it because their reaction was to be amazed, perplexed, or to assume that they were drunk. So either they were like, wow, or what, or nah. Like that was their reaction to what was going on. I think it was more for the disciples because Jesus had told them something pretty profound. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now you can imagine for Jewish kids that have spent their whole lives in either Galilee or Jerusalem, back and forth, back and forth, it's basically like Bakersfield to LA, just back and forth, back and forth. Like that's, the, that's the approximate distance of Galilee to Jerusalem. That's their world. Yes, they know Rome exists because Rome's presence is felt there, but they've never been to Rome. They've never been to Egypt. They've never been to India or Ethiopia. They might have met an Ethiopian 
because they would come up sometimes to the temple. People would come from all over the place to Israel, but Israel didn't necessarily go all over the place. These disciples have not been to the ends of the earth. So Jesus tells them, you're going to take my testimony to the ends of the earth, and you can imagine them just being like, whoa. And then here in this moment, they go out into the streets, and they're speaking languages that they've never spoken before. They're speaking Persian. They're speaking Arabic. They're speaking languages that they've never understood, never spoken. And they know they're getting it right because the people in the crowd are like, this is weird. These guys should not be speaking Arabic because they're from Galilee. So just understand that that's the picture that's given. And I believe that God was showing us, I can do this. Yes, you are called to a task that is bigger than your capability, but I am with you. You have my spirit. You have my power to accomplish a task that is bigger than any one of you can accomplish. It's okay to say, I don't think I can do what God's asking me to do. That's not a, that's not a sinful thing for you to say. Not a sinful conclusion for you to come to. God may have put something in your path and you're just like, dude, I, there's no way. I don't think I can do this. God doesn't mind that. In fact, he's well aware that you can't do this. There's a time where Paul uh, had something, we don't actually know what it was, but he calls it a, a thorn in his flesh. And he tells the Corinthian church, he says, I, I asked for this to be removed. Three times I prayed for this thorn in my flesh to be removed. And each time Jesus' response to him was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. It's actually where we don't shine that God uses us in the most profound ways. Think of Moses. I, <laughs> Moses had a lisp or a stuttering thing or something. He couldn't speak. He's like, Lord, you got to send somebody else. I can't be the one that does this. And God's like, no, you're exactly the one that does this. You are the one that I'm choosing. Peter was way too ambitious. He's chopping off ears. He's telling Jesus, yeah, you know, hey, no, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. And Jesus is like, Satan, calm down. Or get behind me, Satan, is the quote. But God actually breathes this, this life into Peter and sees him emerge as, a, as an apostle, a sent one to carry the name of Jesus to the nations. God loves to use our weakness to accomplish his purpose. And that's what Acts 2, 1 through 13 gives us is a picture that God's saying, I'm in this. You're not alone. I'll do the thing that you're not able to do. Your job is to be obedient. You just go. You go and I'll fill. It's also a sign of things to come. This is our third one. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, it says this. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. I would argue that the coming of the Holy Spirit in this Acts 2, 1 through 13 is a sign of things to come. I was listening to a, a preacher named Terry Virgo, and Terry's a, you know, 80-something British guy, just a, an amazingly sweet man. I've gotten to meet him before, and I just have loved his heart for the Lord. Uh, and Terry preached a message, a whole message on um, being drunk. And uh, 
he talked about it. It was incredible. He said, what, what makes you think someone is drunk? And he just starts going through these like symptoms of intoxication. He's like, people are happy, they're joyful, they're singing, you know, they're just like, yeah, and this guy's British, and he grew up in like the 1920s, so imagine like a, a fishing town, actually he grew up in Brighton, so it was a fishing town that he grew up in, and he said, you know, everybody just used to be like singing in the streets, like arms over each other, like, ahoy, maybe, I don't know, it just had that feel of like a jovial feeling of being drunk, that was one. And you can imagine seeing people spill out into the streets, and they're just happy, joyful. They're tasting something that they've never tasted before, the Spirit of God filling their being. And they're overtaken by it. And it's beautiful. Terry called it noisy happiness, not thinking about themselves, indifferent about their own reputation. That's something that happens when you drink, is you get indifferent about your own reputation and in that sense, they were, they were indifferent about their own reputation. There's a boldness. There's a boldness when you get intoxicated to do things that you wouldn't normally do. That's why they call it liquid courage. There's just this sense of the ability to, to get out of your inhibitions and to do or say something that you wouldn't normally do or say. It's honestly led to a lot of regret from people that drink because they do and say things that they wouldn't normally do, but... But these disciples, maybe previously reserved, scared. Peter was scared just a few weeks ago that anybody would know that he was connected to Jesus. So he denied Jesus three times, but full of the Spirit, he goes out and he professes Jesus as the resurrected Christ. There's a boldness that comes. When this crowd was watching these guys, they're loud. They're happy, they're singing, they're speaking, they're talking in other languages that they've never heard before, and they are bold. And the crowd, some of the people in the crowd are like, they've got to be drunk. Peter answers all three of these things, by the way. Their amazement, how they're perplexed, and how people think they're drunk. He's a very good apologist, by the way. He gets up there and he just says, we're not drunk, it's only 9 a.m. He'll say that. That's the start of a sermon. It's a great opening line of a sermon. I'm not drunk, just want to make that known, it's only... 11.30. I don't know what he was communicating. Like, oh, I mean, yeah, if it was 4 o'clock, I would understand. But, uh. but there's a sign of things to come. Paul will use this language in Ephesians 5. I already mentioned it where he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to talk about this filling of the Holy Spirit. He says, we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. There's an aspect of being filled by the Holy Spirit where we are overtaken. Enjoy his presence. This is something that might be missing in the Christian life of some. It's just the enjoyment of God's presence. It's the ability to like sit, rest, Laugh, cry, sing, shout, praise. When's the last time you were overwhelmed by the presence of God? Maybe you think, I don't know how to do that. I can't necessarily tell you how to. I can tell you times that I've been overwhelmed by the presence of God. Sometimes we're intentional. Sometimes we're accidental. Accidental. 
I had one happen yesterday. We were, I'll just tell you a brief story. Got a little bit of time. We were at an emerging leaders gathering down at Imago Day Church in Downey. And uh, we had some, probably about a dozen leaders from Anthem that went down. There were some from other churches. I think all in we had about 70 people that were there. And we just had this time. It was, it was people from ages 13 to 30. And we just wanted to invest in the next generation. It was awesome. And there was a, uh, a gal from Imago Day leading worship. Her name's Carla. And Carla is a Spanish speaker, so she'll sing in English, she'll sing in Spanish, she'll sort of ebb between the two. It's, it's a really beautiful thing. But the other thing that she was doing is there would be these uh, songs that were very familiar. Actually, one of the ones that we sang or will sing today, the Blow Through the Caverns of My Soul, like just, she'll, she'll sing these songs, but there's like an expected melody, and she just was going in a different place. And sometimes that can be disorienting as a worshiper when the leaders are not singing what you're expecting. But the way that Carla led us yesterday, I actually just started to be completely undone by the Spirit of God. Just I felt like a prophetic moment that Jesus was showing me that there's going to be some familiar words being sung in unfamiliar ways in the season to come. He's going to maybe take us to some different places, but he's not going to change the body of truth. He's not going to alter what is true, but he is going to do some different things. And I just felt like he was singing this over this group of people. And I just stood in the back. I'm like, allergies. (laughs) Just like, gone. Just gone. Sometimes it's nature that just undoes you. I've told you before about the time my brother and I uh, we were snowboarders and we went to Mammoth Mountain and there's a, a run at Mammoth Mountain called Paranoid Flats. You take chair 14 up the backside and then you got to take your board or your skis off and hike across the ridge line and you get to the, the edge of the mountain where you're just looking straight down and uh, you, you buckle in and you know whatever and the wind is just whipping off the top and I remember Joe and I, we, we put our boards on and we put our feet over the edge and it was so steep, our feet were dangling like there was a little bit of an invert before we could get going and, and we just sat on the edge and you just look out and just see like all of Mammoth Mountain, all of Mammoth Lakes, all the way down to Lake Crowley, out to like Bishop and just this valley opens up and we just sat there and my brother, we were, I don't know, 19 and 16, when you start praying and crying just enjoying the presence of God in this unbelievable vista that not too many people get to see. And it was this, this overwhelming moment of God's presence. When's the last time you just let God wash over you? There might be times where it feels or might look to somebody else like you're intoxicated because you're not acting according to the normal human code. People don't sing when they're on a walk. People don't bow on their knees and on their face in a public environment while other people are just trying to politely worship Jesus. People don't go spend two or three hours in a prayer room and just enjoy the presence of God. There's something about the dynamic life with God that we're being introduced to in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It's a sign of things to come. Oh, they must be intoxicated. It's not that. Here's my encouragement to you. I imagine there are some of you that say, look, I'm a follower of Jesus. 
I'm like a million miles from the things that you're describing right now. I've never felt anything like that in my life. I just want to tell you this. If you're a follower of Jesus, well, first thing I'll say is this. We, we speak openly about the idea of being a peripheral Christian, or, uh, sorry, a proximity Christian, where you just identify as a Christian because your whole life you've just been near it, been around it, you grew up in it, memorized a bunch of verses in Awana, you went to a Christian school, went to Sunday school, you went to VBS, you know all the songs, you can win a sword drill, you know it, and you're around it. But there's a difference between proximity and surrender. And it's important that we understand that. There's a difference between being near Christianity and giving your life to Jesus. So that's the first thing. The second thing is a lot of us have grown up in environments where the Holy Spirit and our relationship with him just isn't really talked about or invited or coached or even really permission given. I'm not trying to turn this place into a wild, unruly, people just like shouting all the time and that kind of thing. It's not the objective of a spirit-filled church. I'm talking about you enjoying the presence of God that is with you everywhere you go. A, a way to cultivate the enjoyment of God's presence. Some of it is genuinely just getting rid of these for a little bit of time, closing some doors, tuning out some distractions, letting God speak to you. Some of it's getting out of here and getting somewhere out else. Grab a surfboard and go sit in the ocean. Don't, don't catch waves. Just go sit out past the breakers and just let... God's presence to show you something massive. Go for a drive out to Red Rocks, past Mojave. Just look around at how God just carved the canyons with his finger and just wait for the sun to go down and the stars to come out. And praise the living God who created the heavens and the earth. These are ways that we can cultivate. Enjoying his presence. If you know somebody that experiences God's presence on a regular basis, Karen. This is Karen right here. She enjoys God's presence on a regular basis. Just say, hey, can we get together? I just want to sing. I want to worship. I want God's presence. I want to, I want to taste and see that the Lord is good. Can we just ask him to visit us and pray with us and be with us? Let's enjoy his presence together. These are, just, these are little things that you can do to cultivate a life. But here's the thing. If all you're doing, if all you're doing is the law, just trying to be a good Christian and, and make the, the right decisions at the right times and act it out, if all you're doing is the law, you've missed the whole point of the covenant. It wasn't even the point of the first covenant. God gave the law, and he didn't just like suck his presence up off Mount Sinai and say, okay, go, Ten Commandments, you got it, make it happen, Captain. He gave them his presence to go with them everywhere they went. His fire would go, his cloud would go, and when it went, they packed up and they followed, and when it stopped, they stopped and they set up camp. And they, for 40 years, 
They followed his presence until he gave them the promised land when his presence descended on a temple that they were able to go to and worship and be with him. And for a lot of us, we look back at that and just think, man, if there was a pillar of fire, I would be, I would be on fire. <laughs> I would know where to go. I would know what to do. I wish I had that. I can guarantee you that Moses is looking at you and just saying, dude, if I had God's presence in me, that is next level. He is looking at us and seeing the new covenant as the objective of God's kingdom, not his first covenant. So you have it. The call is to use it. And that's what next week we'll spend some time talking about. What does it look like for us to live this life with and in the Spirit of God? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for your new covenant. Thank you for your power and your presence, permission. Thank you for this sign of what is to come, the joy that is available to us, the fullness, the presence. Lord, we want more of your presence in our lives. Just ask who's on prayer team today. Is that we got Reggie, anybody over here? Celeste, all right. I'm going to kind of guide our prayer today, if that's okay, Reggie and Celeste. Um, if you're today just like, yeah, everything that guy's talking about, that's what I want. I just want to encourage you to go and you can talk to Reggie, talk to Celeste, and a few of us will keep our eyes on, and if a, a line starts forming, we'll come and pray as well. But here's the, here's the prayer. The next few days, we're supposed to get like seven inches of rain or something stupid like that. It's going to be a lot. But my prayer is that in the same way that the rain is being poured out on Southern California, that God, this morning, today, will pour his love into your heart by his Holy Spirit. That's Romans 5, 5. And you're just like, I just, I just need to feel the love of God today. I need to be ministered to it, by it. I just need to taste it. I need to know that it's there. We would love, we would love to pray that over you. That as the rain pours out, God's love would pour out over you today, right now. So we're, we'll be worshiping. There's communion available for those that are followers of Jesus to, to remember his finished work. There's offering buckets available to step into this relationship of the tithe. We'll talk about that other times. There's singing that we'll do to be filled with the Spirit and sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's a beautiful life together as a church family. But we also, we just want to pray for you today. So please don't be shy. It's not for somebody to say, uh, if I go up there, it means I'm broken. If you go up there, it means you're thirsty. That's what we're after. Let's worship Jesus together. Why don't we stand and respond?